It's awesome to be together, and we have a treat for you tonight. And I want to introduce to you Dr. Timothy Lane. And, and in that, um, we've gotten to know you two, and we're a couple of gems, and so we're looking forward to him being able to speak. He's going to actually be speaking tonight. Um, not right, this book that you wrote, and we have those back there for you to be able to look at that. This morning was wonderful. He's now going to be shifting gears and, and, and preaching from Unstuck. True? You want to come up here? Okay. Thankful for him and in getting to know you and then even being able to do lunch today to hear your heart for your wife's heart for ministry, what you guys are about, what you're doing here on board. That's amazing. I'd like to pray for you. That'd be good. And then we'll get rolling. Father, thank you so much for this evening. I thank you uh, for Dr. Lane, for his wife, Barb, for bringing him out here to Oregon. Thank you, Lord, for this morning as he preached the word, taught us well. And now, Lord, we're pleasing him. Use this time to your word go forth and as he encourages us that we all walk out of here the same way. For your glory. Go out into the world in the dark to be able to walk how you want to be experienced. Lord, thank you for all that you're doing. world right now, even as we have the mic in our hands right now. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Okay. Thanks for coming back out tonight, or some of you coming out tonight. If you weren't uh, in the worship services worship services this morning. Um, what I want to do uh, tonight, and we're just going to have to play it by ear in terms of time, uh, as a dynamic for ongoing change. And so I wrote this with my counseling in mind. So I always have someone reading this, a couple or individual, as I'm meeting with them. And uh, I want to just uh, introduce you to the, the concepts in this book that I think, as I've done a lot of counseling, uh, that are relevant for you to understand the change process. So I think that can be helpful for you, but it can also equip you as you're helping other people um, and then if you, if you can't remember everything I said tonight, then you can always buy the book, right? Which would be a very good thing. Uh, it's, I, I say without any self-interest at all. So, um, so uh, this morning in the sermon, I said that there are typically three ways that we as human beings respond to the difficulties of life. Or the third one is anger. Uh, anger oftentimes is a secondary emotion. There are always a lot of things going on underneath anger. And uh, just so you know, men, that is the one emotion that our society has told us that we can show. Not necessarily a good thing, but you know, men aren't supposed to say they're sad or they're weak or they're worried. No, we just get angry. But oftentimes underneath the anger, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of sense of not counting or not being worthy. So anger can be a secondary emotion, but that's where we go. We default in those three directions, sadness, anxiety, and anger. And then uh, when, when that doesn't work, typically what you will find is uh, that's when we move to addiction or where we uh, begin to self-medicate. The sadness is getting so bad. The anxiety is ruining my life. I'm getting angry, and I don't know how to change. And so we move to self-medicating behaviors, and some of those involve alcohol, drugs, but we can self-medicate in all kinds of ways. You can self-medicate by Amazon Prime, right? You, you don't feel very good, and you go online, and you look for something you like, and then you find it, and it looks so nice, and you click the, you know, Add, add it and buy it in one click. Have you set that up? I have. 
and you click it, and there's this rush of dopamine. Just like you're drinking alcohol or you're taking a drug, there's a rush of dopamine. And then when it arrives at your door and this fresh box, this package, and you open it up and you see this new, fancy, shiny item, another rush of dopamine. Behavior, or you can imbibe any kind of substance that gives you that rush of do- dopamine, and that's a way of self-medicating. Life is hard, and I need to feel better, and I know that this works. Unfortunately, when you do that, you begin to build up tolerance, and you need more. And then if you stop, if you try to stop right, you then you go through withdrawal, and you start to experience the pain of withdrawal, and it gets you moving back to whatever got you that dopamine rush. That's the, that's the kind of cycle of addiction, and we all struggle with it. Every single person in this room struggles with addiction of some kind, myself included. We all find uh, different ways, other than running to Christ as our refuge, to find comfort, to find solace, to find refuge. Um, so in light of that, what I tried to do is I tried to write a book with some, I think, essential components that capture what you and I need to be interacting with as we think about growth and grace, as we think about change. And uh, that's what Unstuck is all about. And uh, I call it a nine-step journey uh, to change that lasts. And these nine steps aren't necessarily steps that you take in order. I have put them in what I think are some kind of logical order, but they're really all aspects of uh, what you need to be thinking about as you think about growth and grace. And I've captured them in this graphic here. And this is in the book. Um, When I was... uh, developing the book, I was teaching a Sunday school class at my church on anxiety, and at some point in the class, I said, you know, people really need some direction. What are some steps that they need to take to deal with their anxiety? Uh, At the same time, I was thinking about John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? It's an allegory of the Christian life, and so this idea of a path, of a journey, was prominent in my mind, and so we developed uh, this graphic, and I, I think it's It's really helpful. The other thing I was trying to do is I was trying to write a book that was simple enough for a high school or junior high school person to read it, but it was complex enough for someone who's struggling with something significant to be able to benefit from. So here are the nine steps, and and they are in some kind of logical order, and I'll explain them. Number one, uh, get grounded in Christ. Number two, scavenger hunt. Uh, You want to look for the Spirit's work in your life. Number three, Understand your personality and emotions. Uh, That's important. Step four, you've got these little icons. You, your baggage, the terrain, and your weather. We'll talk about those. Then six uh, or five, you want to look at how you're responding to life. Six, you want to go underneath those reactions to see what's happening underneath. And then you're moving over here to understanding, again, your union with Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ, and how does that help you, rather than going down this path, the path of disobedience and folly, to moving down this path of obedience and wisdom? Then you're relating, number eight, in real life. You're actually relating to Christ in the moment with Christ, and then you're moving forward as you love others. Chapter 2. Look at what Paul does in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. So he starts with this. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, right? And then he says this, if any comfort from his love, 
if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if that is happening, then, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So what does Paul do? He says, before I tell you what to do, I want to tell you who you are. See that? He starts with your identity in Christ. This is who you are. You are united to Christ. You're experiencing the comfort of his love. You're experiencing the Spirit's work in your life. You're enjoying tenderness and compassion from Father, Son, and Spirit. In light of that, now, I want you to grow in obedience. And I state this very emphatically in in chapter 1. Obedience follows this identity. You don't don't try to be a good person so that you can earn God's uh, comfort and encouragement and, and spirit. You're given all those things when you, when you initially show faith and repentance and you want to be experiencing that in a daily, on a daily basis. So what we were doing in the first part of this worship service was you learning how to re-enjoy, if you will, God's love and grace for you. Because that's the foundation. You've got to come back to that foundation every single moment of every single day. So chapter 1 is very important in terms of getting grounded in the grace of the gospel. You're accepted. Now you can struggle as you seek to please God and obey him. You don't try to obey him and struggle so that you can win his acceptance and his approval. Okay? A lot of folks get that backwards. And oftentimes, if you've been a Christian for a really, really long time, you can reverse them and not even know it. So being reminded of the foundational nature of God's grace is important. Uh, the second thing that I talk about is um, oftentimes if you're struggling, and, and I do this too, I can become so negative, that violent kind of voice that runs like white noise in the background, that, that condemning sense of you're a failure. And so what I emphasize in this chapter is your need to go on a scavenger hunt in your own life and look for marks and evidences of the Spirit at work in you. And we don't do that. We go on those sin hunts in our own lives, and then it just fuels guilt and shame. And what we need to do, while we need to own those things, we also need to be going on a scavenger hunt in our life, and we need to be able to say, this is where God is at work. Uh, an example that I use in the, in the book comes from uh, uh, the letter of Paul to the uh, Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians, or it's 1 Corinthians, he, um, he's writing to a church who there, there's an incestuous relationship going on in the church, right? There are dirty church politics. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about is not evidenced in the Corinthian church. They have real, real problems. It's a messy church. It's actually a great encouragement to me as I read 1 Corinthians. Like, yeah, I've been in churches like that, right? Um, but look, look how Paul addresses the Corinthians at the beginning of this letter, knowing that all of that's going on. He says this, the church of God at Corinth. Really? The church of God in Corinth? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus to have been enriched in every way. What does Paul do? And by the way, these are, these are relevant for your ministry to other people. Helping people be reminded of the gospel. Going on a scavenger hunt in another person's life. You know, let me tell you what I see God doing in you. And you probably don't see it. But look what Paul does. He's got lots of issues to deal with. There's a lot of dysfunction going on in Corinth. And what does he do? He starts with, I see the spirit at work in you nonetheless. And he goes on a scavenger hunt in uh, in the life of, of the church at Corinth. Uh, I, uh, I, this happens to me regularly in marriage counseling. And all the things that are wrong with their marriage and their family. And then I start asking them questions. Uh, one couple in particular said, we're fighting, we're not communicating well, uh, we're, uh, we're concerned about uh, our children. Uh, we both come out of broken, dysfunctional homes, and we're afraid we're just doing the same old thing over and over again. We're just repeating history. And I start to ask them questions. I start to see very different things. I start to see, um, oh, wait a minute. So in spite of all that, you're actually coming to get help from a Christian counselor. There's a mark of the Spirit. You're concerned about your children. Wow, that's a good thing. You're concerned about your kids. That's a mark of the Spirit. Um, you, uh, you are aware of all of this dysfunction this, this and brokenness in your past, and you, 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 want to, you want to move in a different direction. There's evidence of the, the work of the Spirit in this couple's life. And, and I start to say, let me tell you what I'm seeing here. And you can feel it, it's palpable, it begins to change. Why? Because they are the last people to see those things in their lives. They're so fixated on their problems. They can't see that God's spirit is at work in them. And there are good things that are being evidenced as a result of that. So uh, I spend time in that chapter talking about um, the need to, to be able to go on a scavenger hunt in your own life. I actually say be ruthless with yourself. You know, we're ruthless with ourselves when we find bad stuff, right? Be as ruthless when you look for evidences of the mark of the Spirit. I say, you must train your eyes to be a detective for evidence of the Spirit's work in yours or in someone else's life. So that's important. A grounding in Christ, seeing uh, evidence of the Spirit. The thing that I talk about in the book is just understanding your personality and your emotions. Um, all of us have uh, a hardwiring that gives us a personality, and, and that personality has strengths, but it also has weaknesses. Some of you are pre predisposed to be able to enter into and empathize with people, and that's a really wonderful thing. But it also can move in a negative direction, and you can become so introspective that you can struggle and move in the direction, be susceptible to sadness and depression. Uh, others of us uh, have personalities that are very much about getting things done. You know, we get frustrated when people sit around and just talk and talk and talk. And, and that's a good thing, but guess what? Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Uh, I actually am that kind of person. I love to see things get done. I love execution. And that works really well in some instances, 
Bro, it doesn't always work real well when I'm counseling someone. If someone comes in and they're highly distressed and there's been a lot of suffering in their life, and I just want to get to the bullet points and the action items to see them change, that can be very, very devastating for them. That's not what they need. And so understanding your personality and understanding emotions and the place of emotions in the Christian life is, uh, is, is very important. Just mentioned personality. Um, your personality and emotional makeup are part of the unique and wonderful way that you have been created by God. Is present from birth. You're kind of hardwired that way. All of us are. But they can also be shaped as we grow up. If our personality and emotional makeup are woven into us by God, it means that these patterns are inherently good. There are strengths associated with those, those patterns. Our differences in this area are to be celebrated. And this is helpful to understand. So what's the point of all this? Change will look different for each person. It will occur along the contours of of one's God-given personality and emotional makeup. Why is it important to state this? Because sometimes we are too quick to go on a sin hunt in another person's life when what we are dealing with are simple but important differences. I see this all the time in marriages. Um, the very thing that attracted husband and wife to one another now become the things that they don't like and they actually try to label as sinful. So you know, a highly social woman meets and marries a highly uh, thoughtful and quiet man. I'm reversing the roles in my family. <laughs> uh, but you know, you're drawn to one another, and you're like, oh, I found my other half. And the social wife and the quiet husband, a few years into marriage, are no longer quiet, you know, social wife and quiet husband. The social wife now is obnoxious. Right? You talk too much at parties. You know, you're always running your mouth. And the husband is, is no longer quiet and a great listener. He's boring. So you begin to look at your personality differences through the lens of sin. And then the conflict just emerges. Um, research, by the way, this is, a, this is just a, an added extra here. Research shows us that in any marriage, no matter who you marry, 70% of your problems are perpetual. They'll never go away. And so what it looks like to grow your marriage is to manage those differences. And they're usually associated with personality, the way you express emotions, and family of origin. Right? Those are the things that make up 70% of your perpetual differences. 30% of your issues in a marriage are solvable. And it varies from couple to couple. Uh, my wife and I, Bob and I, we have a different approach to time. All right? And if we don't appreciate the strengths that are associated with each of our different approaches to time, we'll just start to get irritated and bitter with one another. We have to learn how to manage that difference. This is how my wife has been hardwired, and there are many strengths. This is how my husband has been hardwired, and there are many strengths to that. How do we work together? Maintain a sense of humor about those differences. You see? So understanding your personality, understanding your emotional makeup is very important when you think about growth and grace. Because here's the fact, and I'll speak as it relates to my marriage. There are certain things about Barbara and there are certain things about me that will never change. And they're not necessarily sinful. 
differently. And pretty soon, rather than just saying, you know, we're just different. How can we compromise and work better together? All of a sudden, you're now into a sin hunt and character flaws. And then you're trying to trump them up on some heresy or character, big character issue, so you can run them out of town. Right? That, we're great at that. And, and help you understand that we, we are different in terms of our DNA and our hardwiring. And so change, growth, and grace will, will shape itself along the contours of our personality. We don't have to become somebody else, unique and different. And we want to be able to understand that. Okay? Got some examples I could share, but I'm going to move on. What's the fourth point? This is really important. Um, as you think about understanding uh, the change process, understanding your story. You've got to understand your story. And we use uh, these real interesting icons, understanding you, understanding your baggage, your history, understanding the current terrain, and understanding your the weather. Now let me break those down for you. What does it mean to understand your yourself? Well, we talked a little bit about this a moment ago, but we each have a brain and a body, and we each are engendered as male or female. And those are important things to know. So all of us were born with brain strengths and brain weaknesses. Um, and you could actually have a vulnerability to a struggle that is historical. It's not uncommon that you find uh, mental illness uh, as you look further back in a, a family lineage. It doesn't mean that you're determined to, you know, move in that direction, but being aware of it is helpful. Uh, you see it with depression. You see it with anxiety. There, there, are, there are things that we pass down. Uh, there's something called epigenetics. I won't get into that, but there, there is a sense in which the experiences of previous generations actually change and modify the DNA that gets passed down from generation to generation. It's what recent research is showing us. It doesn't, it doesn't predetermine you, but it certainly makes you more susceptible and vulnerable. Um, so we all have brain strengths and brain weaknesses. I could go into more detail about that. Uh, your body. We all have unique strengths and weaknesses in terms of our bodies. Uh, some of us, uh, when we're born, we have, we have uh, suffering that is associated with our bodies uh, that was uh, passed down to us. And that shapes the way we experience life. Just think about this. Uh, they did some research. They got some men together, some women together, and they said, men, when was the last time you felt fear? You were afraid. They asked the same thing to a group of women. And the men were scratching their heads for about 10 or 15 minutes trying to figure out when was the last time they felt afraid. They asked the group of women, and the women said, oh, last night when I was walking from Target to my car, I was looking around me in the parking lot. You're more vulnerable in this world. Unfortunately, that's the case. Right? And so you're much more vigilant, and you experience fear. It doesn't mean that we men can't experience fear, but just in terms of how you're embodied in terms of your gender, that right there is just a, a, a simple difference between uh, men and women. So understanding uh, those things are very important. Understanding yourself, your physical body. The second thing is understanding your past. Part of your past, your relational history. 
or experience as a young three-year-old with your primary caregiver. That matters. That's had an impact on you. Um, done a lot of interesting research around the, 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 uh, <coughs> the concept of attachment theory and what your uh, experience was early on with your primary caregivers. And that, that can carry on into adulthood as a result of what you've experienced. Um, your event history, things that have happened to you that are not people-related, but just event-related. What if you grew up and, you know, every summer you, you were wondering when the tornado was coming through Tornado Alley? Or you experienced some, you know, uh, uh, significant event in your history that, that caused you to question how safe the world was. Something more innocuous. I grew up in a Marine Corps family, and we moved every two or three years. That's a part of my event history. Moving and the, the, the things that I struggle with and experience, uh, you're uh, thinking more broadly, your political, cultural, and socioeconomic context. That's a shaping influence on you. Uh, your religious and moral upbringing. Did you grow up in a really hardcore, kind of legalistic, fundamentalist, angry kind of Christian home, or did you grow up in a home where you experienced God's love and you were taught the gospel? Did you grow up in a secular home where there wasn't any discussion of, of, of religion? Did you grow up in a home that was hostile to faith? You see, all of those things are things to keep in mind as you uh, think about <coughs> yourself. Uh, your race and ethnicity. Significant shaping influence on you. And so knowing your, your past and, and, and your baggage is important. When I, again, when I work with individuals, um, I'm spending so much time getting to know their story. And they'll come in and they'll say, I'm struggling with anxiety. And I just can't seem to shake it. I say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Oftentimes they'll, they'll feel safe. Okay, so I'm not weird. There is some sense to why I'm struggling the way I am. And I say, tell me about your family of origin. Well, I had my uh, mom's dad and my dad's mom, and they both evidently had some issues with anxiety, and I just have learned about that recently. Usually there's some kind of generational connection. Not always, but sometimes. Your history can help you be more patient with yourself. He shows his grace and his compassion to you, and he loves you. And he says, why don't you just accept that and do that to yourself as well? There's just something helpful about being patient with yourself, not always beating yourself up and, and feeling guilty and, and shame. There, there's nothing better than shame and guilt kind of being mixed in a, a nice, powerful cocktail that will send you in a spiral. The, the third thing I talk about, so you have kind of your hard wiring and uh, strengths and weaknesses, your history, but also your current circumstances. What is your, your age and stage of life, your work, your family? What are your current big-ticket items that are on your plate right now? I'm a parent with four small kids. Or I'm a parent and... I have a child who's struggling, and I'm worried about what's going to happen to them. That's kind of your current circumstance. Uh, that is your terrain. And you can, you can list a host of 
current big ticket items that are on your plate. You need to be aware of that. And finally, the weather. The weather represents your triggers. Your triggers are, I've got something happening in the present, but it's, it's triggering a response to something in the past. You know, when, when my spouse is critical of me, I lose it. I blow up. But that's connected to potentially, this, is, this isn't for everybody, it potentially is connected to, I grew up with a parent who was always beating me down. And when I hear even an iota of criticism, that's a trigger for me that connects me to this event in the past, and it feels like it's happening in the present. Okay. Those are things that are important to be aware of. That chapter is important. And here's a, here's a diagram that just captures the idea that you and I are uniquely complex. When you start to put all those things together in each individual person's life, you start to figure out how unique and complex each of us is. And it's why, uh, you know, one shoe fits all approach to change doesn't work. Um, what may help an anxious person over here may not help an anxious person over here because there are different things underneath the anxiety. Uh, you're wanting to get to know your story and also, if you're working with someone, get to know another person's story. Uh, the blessings and the suffering. So here how they interact with one another. You, baggage, terrain, weather, all those things are interacting with one another. And that telling your story is helpful because you're starting to put the pieces together. I always spend a lot of time when I'm working with people and counseling and just listening to their story. And it may, it may take three or four uh, times getting together as we're getting to know one another. Uh, we, we go back, you know, further into counseling. We'll go back, well, tell me again about this. And they'll say, oh, yeah, and I forgot about this. Oh, you forgot about that. That seems like that's pretty important too, isn't it? Yeah, but I've never thought about that connection with my struggle. And it's helpful for people to put that narrative together. Um, because that narrative allows them to put things in their proper place and to process them and also to um, grow in what they call stress tolerance. In my past, as I look at it, as I talk about it, as I explain it to you, it begins to lose its, its uh, weight over me and the stress that it caused begins to weaken and lessen as I talk about it. Right? To be quick to listen, slow to speak, speak slow to become angry. To listen to a person's story very, very significant. Uh, I, can, I can begin to do that in a way that doesn't feel threatening or, or doesn't feel guilt or shame producing. I'm in a safe space. And if, if you're helping someone and you're incarnating the love of Christ, they'll feel safe with you. Right? So don't go on a sin or idol hunt in a person's life. Just listen and walk with them. Eventually, you'll get to the reactions. And in this chapter, I basically use the fruit of the Spirit to help people kind of see what does it look like to grow in wisdom, to grow in grace, and what does it look like to move in a different direction and to continue to uh, struggle with disobedience and, and move in the direction of foolishness. And in Galatians 5, 19 through 25, you have the deeds of the sinful nature and the deeds of the new nature. 
and let me show you how they're broken down. It's an interesting way. When you look at the deeds of the sinful nature, bad fruit, there they're listed. Look at how, um, look at how they're categorized. So folly, the life of disobedience, starts with false worship. Paul talks about idolatry and witchcraft. Right? That's, that's false worship. Then that leads to a lack of self-control over bodily pleasure. So he talks about uh, sex and food and drink. You've lost self-control. Then that lack of self-control leads to destructive attitudes, hatred, jealousy, selfishness, am, uh, selfish ambition, envy. And then those destructive attitudes result in destructive action towards others, discord, fits of rage, dissensions, and factions. That's worship. There are, uh, uh, there's lack of self-control, destructive attitudes, destructive results towards others. So eventually my struggles begin to impact other people. Love, joy, and peace. Orientation. No longer false worship, but true worship, which leads to, you can kind of flip two and three. Look at number three. Leads to personal integrity. I'm living in faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. See how different that is from the other list? Which then impacts attitudes towards others. Number two. Uh, forbearance and kindness and goodness. And Paul says, no, since you have been raised with Christ, you have a new power within you to live differently regardless of your circumstances. So that's, that's the key. Right. Then you move to looking underneath your reactions to what's driving those motivations. So let me give you an illustration here. I'm driving my car down the highway, and I notice that the gauge on the car is showing me that the car's about to overheat, right? So it's moving in the safe range over to about 200 degrees. That's, that's a bad sign. And it's telling you that your, your car is about to overheat. Now, what if you stop into a mechanic and you say, I need you to look at my car and fix my car. I'm concerned because this gauge is, is way over here. What if that mechanic gets out, he busts the plastic or glass over your gauge panel, pushes the gauge back and puts a piece of tape on it and says, you're good now, go on down the highway, pay me $500. Mechanical knowledge, it might be that you, your, fan, uh, uh, your, your, your belt, fan belt has broken. It could be that your water, uh, water pump is not working properly. It could be that you're low on oil. It could be that um, you don't have enough fluid in your radiator. It could be that you have a hole in your radiator. It could be a, that you have a hole in a hose going to your radiator. There are multiple reasons why a car can overheat, and a good mechanic will do what? A good mechanic will say, let me diagnose properly before I just go about doing quick fixes. But I know that your gauge is not ultimately the problem. I'm concerned about the gauge, but what I want to deal with is the problem under the hood. And that's, that's true of us as human beings. Look how James describes us as human beings, kind of why we do what we do. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. That's James, isn't it? The straightforward pastor. Then look at what he says. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? 
My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. He's using a, a common analogy in an agricultural context that's similar to the one I'm using from the, the illustration of a car. He's saying whatever is at the head of the spring is going to be downstream. If you have a root system that's grapes, you're not going to have thorns. Right? So it is, it is the, the motivational things that we need to begin addressing as we help someone grow in grace, but that takes time. We want to be very careful. And how do we do that? We ask the why and what questions. Why did I do what I did? And here are the two critical what questions. What was I not getting that I wanted? And what was I getting that I didn't want? The false worship that needs to be addressed deep below the surface. Grounding yourself once again in your identity in Christ. And change. And here it is. So uh, I think a, a rich and robust understanding of change from a Christian perspective is this. Change is not less than behavioral, it's more. So is God concerned about our behavior? Yes. But it's more than that. So change is not less than behavioral, it's more. Secondly, a Christian understanding of change is not less than cognitive, it's more. Is God concerned about us replacing truth with lies? Yes. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that's still not enough. A, a Christian understanding of change is this, that it is covenantal. When you hear the word covenant, what do you hear? What comes to mind when you hear the word covenant? Sometimes people will emphasize a contract. How do you enter into a marriage covenant? Is it's more than behavioral, it's more than cognitive, it's relational. So if you're going to change, if you're going to grow in grace, you have to learn how to relate to the true and living God in the moment. Um, and that's what we're doing when we talk about being in Christ. When we are in Christ, there are all kinds of words that the Bible uses to describe what it means to be in Christ. But you see, in just in Ephesians chapter 1, look at all the red in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him. And then look at the look at the blue words. All these words here have significant meaning for what it means to be in Christ. And they're all different ways of you understanding what the nature of the relationship you have with Christ. Um chosen, called, made alive, justified, adopted. You have a new nature. There's hope in suffering because you are united with Christ in his sufferings. There's perseverance, there's glorification. I don't have the time to talk about each of those, but I, I just explain each of those in this chapter and I say, this is the nature of your relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit if you have trusted in Christ. And all of these different ways of thinking about being in, in relationship with the true and living God is designed to get you relating to him in the midst of real life. And it may sound something like this. Oh, Lord, here I go again. That you have forgiven me. Help me. And then relating with him in real life. What does that look like? That we have one 
who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's grace, throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In your time of need, approach the throne of grace. But if my child does that, it makes complete sense. And hopefully if you do that, I'm going to be kind to you. Christian graces will kick in, and I'll be patient, but I'll, I'll go back and I'll say, Father, that was lame. You know? But if our child does that, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm your, ch- I'm your parent. That's what you're supposed to do. All right? Uh, it was uh, a home of mine. And you know why? Because nobody's here but me. I want to talk to you. She stops up the, the hallway, then up the second flight of stairs, and she gets to her room, and guess what she does with her door? She slams it. All right? By the way, stomping upstairs and slamming doors are a pet peeve of mine. Pet peeves are a window into what you live for other than Christ. Look at your pet peeves. All right? They're a window into what you tend to live for more than Christ, and they were very revelatory in this moment. Um, All that happens within probably six and a half seconds. Six and a half seconds before that, it was heaven on earth. Now, you know, this intruder has come in, and all of a sudden, my kingdom has just come crashing down. This kingdom in which I rule and reign. Um, So what do I do? I, I get up and do what any normal, wonderful Christian husband and father and pastor and counselor would do. I get up and I start stomping towards the first flight of stairs. I start stomping up the first flight of stairs, and as I'm doing that, I'm saying, where in the world did she learn how to stomp upstairs like this? I'm stomping up the first flight. There are all kinds of things percolating in my heart. I'm living for things other than Christ. One of them is comfort. One of them is control. One of them is respect, uh, appreciation. And guess what? I got none of those. I got just the opposite. And in that moment, six and a half seconds before, I was getting all that. I was in control. It was comfortable. It was peaceful. It was quiet. Nobody was there to disrespect me. All of a sudden, my world is starting to come tumbling down, and I'm getting a lot of things I don't want, and I'm not getting a lot of things I want. And because I've grown in grace over the years, I was aware of that. I was self-aware. You know what? I can tend to get hijacked in little moments like this. And I was. I was getting hijacked. I was stomping up the stairs. I was angry. I was irritable. <clears throat> I start walking down the hallway, and uh, by God's grace, he reminds me of a little passage that I had been uh, studying just that morning in sermon prep. Isn't that wonderful? I was doing all this sermon prep so that on Sunday I could help people understand how to live by grace. You know, and respond to life circumstances with wisdom and, and obedience and ways that please God and serve others. Wonderful, wonderful thoughts while you're sitting there in your study with no one to bother you. All that comes crashing down. But thankfully, by God's grace, it begins to get a hold of me. And the verse that was standing out was one in First Corinthians uh, chapter uh, or First Corinthians one twenty nine. It says, "Jesus is wisdom from God." He is our holiness, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. I just, I just say, God, help me. 
here I go again with these stomping feet and this irritation and this anger and all that junk that comes out when I'm not getting what I want or I'm getting something I don't want and I'm worshiping something other than you. Help me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. And, and I say, Father, you were reminding me earlier that Jesus is my righteousness. Right now, I am completely righteous in your presence. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And I have a full and free audience with you. I can talk to you right now. In fact, I am talking with you right now. Why am I so upset that my, tr- my daughter, I feel like my daughter snubbed me in the moment. And I didn't get her audience. And I didn't get her appreciation. Father, you say Jesus is my holiness. I have a new heart. I have the spirit of of Christ in me, the spirit that is wanting to conform me into the likeness of Jesus, to grow me in holiness. Um, It is not a foregone conclusion that I have to act out in the same old way. Even though I may be vulnerable in this way, even though I may be hardwired in this way, even though I may be temperamentally predisposed in this way, it is not a foregone conclusion that I have to do the anger thing, do the irritation thing. Because your Holy Spirit is in me, I have a choice. I have the ability, a new power, to say no to that garbage and yes to something else. And Father, not only that, as as if that weren't enough, Jesus is my redemption. Everything, and I'm going to rule and reign along with all of my brothers and sisters in Christ and the angels over this, this new order. Why am I so upset that I'm losing control over this little postage stamp piece of property that I don't even own the bank owns? Why am I so upset that I I feel like I've lost control of that, that I've got slamming doors and stomping up stairs behavior going on in here? I don't have to worry about that. I can put that in its proper perspective. And, And so I'm just relating to God on the basis of a short little passage, and I'm going vertical. And all of those things, by the way, Jesus is your righteousness, your holiness, and your redemption. All of those are aspects of being united to Christ. Those are aspects of what it means to be in relationship with God. So guess what? I I start up the second flight of stairs, and guess what? I'm not stomping. I'm doing what you're supposed to do when you walk upstairs. You're supposed to just put one foot in front of the other and push up gently so you can make your way up. That's the goal. That's the purpose of stairs. You don't have to stomp up the stairs to get up there. It's not any more effective. But the gospel is changing now my body language. Why? Because what does stomping upstairs say? You're communicating something. I am irritated. Right? You don't have to say anything, but it communicates. And it's, it's, it's communicating what's going on inside of you. When I start walking up the second flight of stairs, I start walking just gently. I don't stomp. And I get to my daughter's door. And uh, it's closed, and, and this is probably the most miraculous piece of this. I go from, when I want to knock on her door, I go from this, right? And when you, when you want to knock on a door and make an impression, you always do this. And if you don't, you need to learn this, because why? <laughs> when you do this, you have a little bit of cushion right here. And because you're committed to your own self-preservation, you're going to bang on the door like this because it's not going to hurt as much. I bit my wrist and tap on the door. And my daughter doesn't know that's what's happening outside of her door. I tap on the door and I say, Hannah, uh, how are you doing? I'd love to talk with you. You seem upset. 
guess what she does? She doesn't say, oh, great loving father. So patient art thou. Please come in and let us converse with one another. She goes, no, I don't want to talk with you. I don't want to talk with anybody. See, in that moment, I was just able to say, okay, that's fine. Uh, if you'd like to talk sometime, be happy to do that. And I walked down the stairs. A couple hours later, she comes down. We're down fixing dinner, and uh, she had no idea what had just transpired outside of her door two hours earlier. Uh, she didn't see kind of the revival breaking out, you know, the spirit on the move in my life, and she's getting rescued from me because I'm getting rescued from myself. She comes down a little bit later, and uh, we start talking, and, um, you know, we start asking, you know, how was your day? Well, she starts telling me about her day. Now, remember, this is a 13-year-old girl, and she experienced, number one, a mean girl day. Some of her, what she thought were friends of hers, had said some mean things about her. The kinds of questions that you and I ask as well. Who am I? Do I have value? Does anybody like me? See, you ask those questions too. That's what's going on. And what I discovered as we interacted with one another is I realized that everything that had gone down in our home a few hours later when she slammed the door and stomped up two flights of stairs and slammed her door, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And I was making it all about me. You're stomping up my stairs. You're not showing me respect, man, that God was wanting to flush out of me by his grace. I realized it had nothing to do with me. And you know, we just kept interacting, and I was able to just say a few words of encouragement to her, and we moved on. Your homes and in, in my home still, and I still struggle. Okay. But imagine this. I said this this morning. Imagine uh, a 13-year-old daughter growing up in a home where angry, irritable dad is always showing up. Or maybe angry, irritable dad is growing in grace and less so, and when he does, he comes back and says, that was wrong, will you forgive me? Two completely different relationships. When you add up the years, it can change in you, but you will see the impact of that change on others. Uh, that's the, uh, the place where I end book, and then the very last chapter is just a case study. I take a guy named Jim who struggles with anxiety, and I apply the nine steps to his life as, as, a, as an illustration of how they can be uh, helpful as you think about what the change process looks like. Okay, I know I went a little bit over, um, so, so please, uh, if you need to leave, you can, but you know, any short Q&A, and Matt, you feel free to you to get your head around what it looks like. You got beautiful weather here in Oregon. You probably want to get outside. I don't blame you. So if there aren't any questions, come on up and close us. Thank you all for um, coming out tonight. I hope this was helpful, and um, hopefully the book will be useful to you as well. Thank you. Thanks.